Welcome to Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson. Yep, that's me. And I am excited to bring to you great people from all over the world who are making changes, breaking things, and remaking them around various creative industries. So bring us your great innovators and we'll bring them to you here in the Creative Innovators Podcast. Ted Cohen has seen it all. He has lived through early stages of digital music when he and others saw where we were going. But he also has tales of doing things right for the wrong reasons, or wrong for the right reasons, and how he looks at the different dimensions of playlists and the challenges of digital streaming music. He talks about the genuineness of artists and the challenges of overproducing in this live streaming concert time. He talks about pricing risks into new markets, scarcity, negotiations, how business challenges show up over and over again, and how some people don't see or know about past launches when they go to create their own businesses. Ted shares his search and joy for things that are amazing, or as he puts it, effing amazing as a whole, and and how much he enjoys elegant execution. And he shares the joy of how paying it forward is important because of those people who paid it forward for him. Enjoy this podcast. And we're actually, in some ways, if there's any good that's come out of, um, you know, this whole upheaval with coronavirus and, and with the social unrest around other things, we're looking at things that we might have glanced at before and now say, well, wait a minute, that might be cool to do now. So to give an example, I'll give a little, give a little bit of history and you can cut me off when you want to, but <laughs> I started out in high school managing bands. I went off to college in pre-med. The first week I was at school in Ithaca College in Ithaca, New York. I found out that Rod Serling was teaching there, teaching how to write for television I switched my major over to communications and broke my mother's heart that she wasn't getting a Jewish doctor and just threw myself into what was music and what was the music business, what was communication. I ended up back in Cleveland where I was from and I always joke, uh, again, nice Jewish boy from Shaker Heights, Ohio. I talked my way into John Carroll University, which was a Catholic university that most of the graduates were either attorneys or priests. Two weeks after I got there, I was running the campus radio station and frightening everybody. (laughs) And eventually, through, again, a a combination of serendipity, events, and whatever, we ended up a 10-watt college station, WUJC, as the only real rock station in Cleveland. WNCR, which was one of the first alternative stations, had come and gone. WMMS had debuted and then went away for a bit. And all of a sudden, if you're a promotion guy in Cleveland and you've got Edgar Winter coming to Cleveland, you got to take him to a radio station. We ended up with Blood, Sweat and Tears, Tom Rush, Edgar Winter, Johnny Winter coming to this 10-watt college station in University Heights, Ohio. And I met some of the promo guys and I met some DJs from other stations and I met this guy, Billy Bass. Billy adopted me. He liked me. And we ended up hanging out a lot. He introduced me to the guys at Columbia Records and a guy named Frank DeLeo who went on to manage Michael Jackson and Steve Popovich who ran Columbia 
and a guy named Marty Mooney became like my step-parents and they got me a job at Columbia Records. I ended up living in Boston uh, eventually for Warner Brothers. I'm skipping a bunch of stuff, but Hmm. I ended up going into artist development, moving to Boston and Boston was a real little tech community. I started going to the Boston Computing Store and I met the people at Advent Speakers and the people at DBX, which was the competitor to Dolby, still our noise reduction. And it was culminated in then moving to Los Angeles and ending up in 1982 on a work group between Atari, Warner Music Group, and Hewlett Packard looking at what the future of digital would be. In 82, there was no internet. Uh, There was internet. There was no web. Mm -hmm. That was not until 94. A modem at that point was 300 baud, which is like 300 bits as opposed to 5 million megabits or whatever. I mean, basically, it was literally, it took as long to send an email as it does to send a movie now. 16K computer or whatever, but we sat in meetings over a year talking about streaming, downloading, burning CDs at a time when a CD burner cost $20,000 and a blank disc cost 100 bucks. but we knew it eventually would come down. The prices, this would all become manageable. But we started talking about and this always sounds like it's a boast, but it isn't. It was uh, under a guy named Stan Cornyn. I don't know if you if you were familiar with mm-mm, him at all. Mm-mm. But he led this group. We talked about, I'd say, 90% about what's happening now. Yeah. We talked about creating playlists. We talked about creating mixes. The CD was coming out in 83, mm-hmm. about a year later. And we're talking about once the CDs adopted as the music listening platform and Laserdisc had already come out in 79, when video and audio are all digital, what will people want to do? We're talking at the time where there's no high-speed internet. A computer is uh, a 4 megahertz computer, a 4.77 megahertz, not gigahertz. There was 16K of memory, and you're storing things on cassettes. But we knew the bandwidth would come, the storage would come, when the platforms would eventually arrive. So in a typical long-winded answer for me, I've been waiting for the mainstreaming of all this stuff since literally 82, 83, 84. I then ended up at Philips producing music uh, CD-ROMs and Philips perfected the, not perfected the platform, but perfected the implementation of MPEG. So in 93, we were doing MPEG-1 movies. We had licensed every title from Paramount Pictures And so instead of a DVD, which was a movie on a disc or a Blu-ray where you can put five movies on a disc, MPEG-1 was a a larger size encoding format. You could get a half a movie on a disc. So you had two discs per movie. We probably paid them $25 million to license the library. Mm -hmm. I don't know anyone but me and a few friends who still have copies of the movies. But we knew people would want to watch movies on demand. We knew people would want to create their own video. And so for me, it's a great time. But when everyone says, why didn't anyone ever think of this before? (laughs) They had. We were waiting for the right platforms, the right infrastructure, the right chipset. And some of these things was shrinking something that might be a big black box 20 years ago onto something the size of a flash drive. Well, also, I would uh, say that the... The cost to produce and create content, you needed 
pretty significant expertise and really expensive technology. In December of 93, I went to the record plant recording studio mm-hmm. uh, here in Los Angeles, and I met the band The Cranberries. I had been introduced by uh, a guy named Len Fico at Island Records because I said I wanted to do a CD-ROM following a band from the release of their album through hopefully eventual success to flip all the cards because it came out two years later, instead of it being a CD-ROM about here's the cranberries, we'd like you to meet them. It's here's the cranberries who just sold 13 million records between their first two albums. But the project, most of the discs we were doing, most of the, the productions we were doing at Phillips were anywhere from a million dollars to $5 million. We went through a billion dollars by December of 96. So money was flowing and I agree that production could be expensive, but what we came up with for the Cranberries, I gave them each camcorders and told them to shoot footage in the dressing room on the tour bus backstage. And the disc was basically the Cranberries presenting the Cranberries. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't hiring a video crew to shoot their concert with a five camera shoot at Madison square garden. It was the band shooting footage in the dressing room. And it actually was a more intimate experience than had we hired Ken Burns to do a documentary on the cranberries. And so we learned early on that the more organic it was, the more real it was, the more of a connection that you could have. And and almost that's where we are all over again. Right. That, so that's what I was going to say without yeah. jumping. We are, you, you are going to jump me to where I was going to I jump. I am. So when, we, again, we are in June of 2020 and we're three months into, into the uh, COVID-19 crisis. When the live music business shut down in March, everybody rushed to figure out, okay, what do we do next? So you started having living room concerts. And early on, there was a, a Garth Brooks and Trisha Yearwood. Mm-hmm. that from the perspective of watching it looked very unproduced. As an aside, my brother in Florida, who has an ancient satellite dish, he's got like one of those 15-foot K-band dishes. He happened to find the the line feed <laughs> before the thing went live. Mm-hmm. When the cameras swung around the other way, there were 30 people in the room. <sighs> but it, was, it did have that feel. And I, I had posted something in a discussion a couple of weeks ago that the first batch of living room concerts felt really good and really sincere and really organic. The more everybody tried to outdo each other, the less real they felt and the less connection I felt with any of them that I watched. So I find myself, there's a guy named Dan Navarro. Mm-hmm. And I knew him and, and his partner, Eric, it was Lowen and Navarro. Mm-hmm. And I've known these guys for like 20 years. I happened to see Dan was doing a living room concert. I find myself watching him for 30 minutes to an hour. There's a kid in Brooklyn, a kid. There's a guy in Brooklyn. His name is Craig Greenberg. I met him o- online on uh, Brian Zisk's conference a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I, every time he posts, I'm live online, I go watch it. It's him at a piano in his living room. The ones that have been overproduced, they're missing the point. Now, you then jump to the highest point of that, which is BTS this weekend did $20 million yeah. on a pay-per-view. But that's BTS, and they did a full production somewhere, and they reached every fan in the world in one night. 
or what uh, Travis Scott did on Fortnite or mm-hmm. what Marshmallow did. Those things are, are, are good, but you can't use those as a template for what you're going to do going forward. You use them as an inspiration. You don't imitate them. You use them to inspire you to come up with something else. But everybody I'm talking to about what they're doing for the moment to make a living, stay with something that, that is and looks homegrown and organic. And if, if you're trying to really put on something in the barn in your backyard, you don't need to do that. Mm-hmm. If you've got a, uh, the example that I give, and you can cut this out, whatever, is we went to see Michael Bublé a few years ago, and there were strings and horns and background singers and the most amazing lighting I'd seen in years. And the show was really good. Michael Bublé is very talented. But at the end, everybody left the stage. The house lights came on. He took out his in-ear monitors, put the microphone down, stood at the end of the stage and sang Leon Russell's I'm Singing This Song For You. It stopped everybody. There was Mm -hmm. more connection with him singing a cappella at the foot of the stage than there was with all that production because it came down to the song and the voice. And in this case, not even a guitar or a piano. It just was somebody singing their heart out to you. So I always tell people, start with what the core is. Start with what you feel it is about your music that moves people and you can enhance it, but don't bury it. So it's, it's those kind of things. So we're seeing... Can I, add I, something? I was just going to say ahead. that I think that in many ways it's a little unique to now. I was just in a call talking about how there, there's a sense of a need for intimacy right now. And I do think that having the eye to eye contact that comes from a simple concert playing the guitar on stage or in your living room right now that I think people are also seeking and finding resonance right now. And maybe it's also the contrast to the highly produced that makes this special. But I do think there's it's a comforting. A, yeah. There's it, a need. It's yeah, like, a, it's like curling up with a blanket in front of the fireplace. I, I'm one of the, I'm going to be writing some articles for a publication. And one of the ones I submitted, which they liked was don't look at this homegrown concert uh, phenomenon as something that's just going to be here after, during this crisis and it's going to go away. I think people are realizing that this can be done. I mean, going again, going back maybe five years now, there's a club down the street from where we live called uh, LA Exchange. It's the old stock exchange here mm-hmm. in LA. And it's an EDM, it's a dance music club, and it's 21 and over. They've been recording a lot of their shows, both in VR and just standard recording with like some big name DJs. And there's an argument of, would you want to watch that at home? Well, if you've got a good pair of headphones or good speakers and a decent sized TV for a lot of people that can't be in LA to see Danger Mouse do a show, it's aspirational and it gives you that connection with that artist. And so this fear of, well, if we, if we broadcast it, nobody will want to come to the club anymore. Mm-hmm. No, it becomes something of, I want to go there and see the band live. It doesn't hurt. And again, jumping back to uh, late 70s, I convinced uh, the Pretenders to do a live broadcast from Santa Monica Civic the week their album came out. Their first show was three days after their album release. And I had to fight internally at the label at Warner where I worked 
that you're going to kill the record. Everybody's going to record the live show and never buy the album. It ended up being bigger than their last album. It didn't hurt sales at all. This whole thing of you want to create something special about it and you want to create a certain degree of some kind of scarcity, but you don't want to necessarily keep it away from everybody because you're, you're per, quote, protecting the asset and you can protect them into obscurity. So I love that most of your sentences start with, I convinced. <laughs> Is it that people are more convincible now because it's now obvious or there's a whole new level of convincing oh. people to move forward that's not going to cannibalize? Now that everything's streaming... That is everything seen then as a, a, a supplement to get people to stream for sub pennies? What are the conversations now in the I convinced realm? Okay. So when I was at EMI, we went through a couple of regime changes. And this is a terrible joke and everyone's going to – I won't do the bad version of it. I happened to fly in on September 10th, 2001 into New York, arriving at 6 a.m. on September 11th, 2001 – Got to my hotel at 7.30, and at 8.45, the first plane hit the World Trade Center, and a couple, a few minutes later, the second plane hit. And I always talk about that I was in New York for the disaster, and I, and I go, what I mean? And people will say, yes, 9-11. And I go, no, the Mariah Carey album. I was in New York for meetings on the Mariah Carey. I did the nicest version of that I've ever done. I appreciate that. Uh, and I believe me. And so I'm not making fun of it or, or, or lessening you know, the impact of it. But I had gone to New York because the Mariah Carey album came out that morning, the Glitter album. And over the next few months, EMI cut 3,000 people from the staff around the world. Ken and Nancy Berry, the chairman and the vice chairman, were dismissed. And Alon Levy and David Munns came in to run the company. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a role where I had to write long-winded proposals of why we wanted to do a deal with Rhapsody. We did the deal with Rhapsody in December of 2001. And why would we want to have subscription? And aren't we giving away everything? If people can listen to anything they want for $10 a month, why would we want to do it? And I had to explain, you're going to get a consistent amount of revenue. It's not going to have peaks and valleys based on, is there a hit album or do we have three bad albums this quarter? And so the combination of looking 90 days out to meet the quarter to basically what are your revenues for the next three months? Are we going to meet targets? There was this uh, pressure to come up with revenue opportunities. My argument was that subscription would be a long-term revenue opportunity. And at the time I was looked at as the guy who was going to kill the music business. I really believe that if I could hear anything I wanted, whenever I want, I'd pay 10 bucks every month and we also had to get out of this ignorance that most people only buy two or three CDs a year. If you can get $10 a month from everybody every month, you've actually increased the revenue base for the industry. But what I had to do, and I've said this to your class, mm -hmm. and I've said, don't take what I don't, don't, I don't want your parents calling me, telling me you got fired because you did what I did. I would be asked for substantiating data. I mean, Mark Mulligan now would be somebody that you might go to for research at media research to get substantiating data on a particular idea. At the time, there was no data, mm -hmm. but I would be asked, what does McKinsey think about this? So I'd say, let me go see. And about a week later, I would bring them back the report from McKinsey 
on the optimistic outcome of subscription model because it took me a week to write the report and put McKinsey's logo on it because there was no research. So I had to create, I basically had to take what I believed and sort of game the system. So other so than it, making new McKenzie reports, yes. is it that it's obvious now where we are? Or in many ways, I keep well, coming back to the crisis we're sitting in the middle of, that things are broken anyway. So well, where yeah. are we taking things? Right, right. So, so what happened toward the end of this, where it got easier, was as business got worse and worse in 2004, 2005, somebody would say, well, that deal went quicker than the last one I did with you with the other company I was working with. I said, with desperation comes great vision. Mm-hmm. So it became easier because if I was bringing in $2 million from a company that they had no belief in, even though I would say like iTunes made sense, but at the time it was like, these are the people that said rip, mix and burn. Why would we want to be in business with them? So, I mean, we did the iTunes deal. We did the Rhapsody deal. We did a hundred, we did about 150 deals. I'd gone to work for Jay Samet, who was a really smart guy. He felt that he didn't like the new regime. So he went off to run Sony Connect, which was a competing download service to iTunes. Him and I were, were there to basically reinvent what a record company, what a music company was, not a record company, but what a recording company was. So it was a wonderful experience to see these changes, but things kept, it. EMI got into more and more trouble and they sold to Universal. I left about six months before it sold to Guy Hand's company. I'll give another example and you can use this or you can cut it out. If you came in to see me, let's say at the time you were working with a startup and you were like their private banker, you were their their advisor, and you showed me something that was brilliant, but you said, look, it's not funded yet. I would write you a letter on my stationery. You know, and I had, we all, the executives, we had our own stationery. Why not? So I would write <laughs> you a letter saying, this gives you the right to go off and do a six-month test. And the letter meant nothing because I didn't have the authority. I wasn't a business affairs guy. I'm not an attorney. I'm not, a, I'm not an in-house counsel. But it gave you cover mm-hmm. uh, to go off and do what you did. And if somebody happened to call up and say, I see you're using our music. Who told you you could? You could fax them at the time. Here's a letter from Ted Cohen that said I could do this. I would possibly get fired. In the three, four years I did that, I never got caught. They never got caught. And companies came back when they were funded because they were able to prove the model. And we were able to start it. And I'll give you one last example, which I, again, I think I've used in your class. I got a call from Nokia. They wanted to buy 100,000 tracks mm-hmm. at a discount to give away with Nokia music phones. And they said, we know your wholesale 75 cents. We want a discount. So my running joke is that with my Oxford, Cambridge, Wharton training, I gave them 20% off instead of 75 cents. It was 60 cents a download. And I sold them the right to download 100,000 tracks. I then went to a guy named Shahar Oren, who I'm talking to tomorrow morning, actually, and said, could you fulfill a premium model where if somebody scratched off a code on a plastic credit card size card insert in the phones, we're going to give away 10 tracks with every phone and they will go to a site and they'll redeem them. He goes, of course I could build that. So he built it. But I knew that if I tried to run it through my digital business development food chain, they would say, how do you know this is going to work? And 
you're discounting our music. And and how does this pr- and, protect our organization in right. every single scenario that's out there? Right. Because that's what business affairs does. Right. I couldn't get it through my department. So I went to a guy named Eli Oaken who ran special markets at EMI. He would do the Pottery Barn CDs and the buy 10 gallons of gas at Shell Oil and get Songs of the Summer featuring the Beach Boys and Jan and Dean. Premium items. Physical premiums, though. And I said, here, take this deal. It's $60,000 for 100,000 tracks. And it's, the money goes to you. And because I, I knew I'd never get it through the paperwork I had to do. About eight months later, Ivan Gavin, the COO of North America, who was Dutch, Afrikaner, South African, calls me and starts screaming at me. He goes, you mother, you thought you'd fool me, but I caught you and you think you're so clever, you piece of... And he's screaming at me for about five minutes. And he goes, are you there? Are you listening? And I went, yes. I said, but I've never been yelled at in this exact dialect, so keep going. And he says, what you did? I said, yeah, no, you tell me, what did I do? He says, you discounted our music. You devalued our artists. You went outside of policy. Da, 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 da. I said, no, I didn't. He says, what do you mean? I said, what did I do? He says, you sold 100,000 songs for $60,000, which would should have been 75000 at regular wholesale. I said, no, I sold the right to download 100,000 songs in a six-month period for this promotion. How many songs do you think got downloaded? I don't know how many. I said, 1,000. He says, what does that mean? I said, it means we got $60 a track. He goes, what are you talking about? I said, it's called breakage. And I explained him the whole idea of premiums that don't get, you have a anywhere from 2% usually to 4% redemption on a premium. And in this case, it was 1%. And he goes, wait a minute, is this a business? And I said, yeah. And I explained to him why it was a business. And he had Eli set up, Eli Oaken, with Shelly Hill and a couple other people set up a um, premium, a digital premium vertical inside of special markets. The point of this was, had I tried to propose this, I would have had to write a 20-page overview and be asked, how can you justify this? And how do you, and I could have said, well, premiums are only 2%. So even if 2% do it, we're getting $30 a song. So the easy way to shortcut it was to go, to go around the problem. So I don't recommend I, that to everybody. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and you do tend to go around the problem at times, and that's one of your special superpowers. But I was going to say that we, before we started recording, we talked about the fact that people talk about things as if they're new. And is it that not enough people understand the premium marketplaces or, or what is breakage or the fact that there's business models that already exist? So they kind of lack the vocabulary to look at the, all the permutations of things. Or is it that people just don't know enough about the history of where we've been? Well, that's the thing. I was talking to somebody earlier and I was, and it might have been you. It may have been me. Uh, that I was saying that, you know, I have multiple personalities. That, so sometimes right. it's really hard to tell. When people came in to see me at EMI or when, when I've either gotten a call from a potential new client or I meet somebody at an event and they'll tell me what they're doing and I'll say to them, uh, usually fairly knowledgeable, I'll say to them, well, who else is doing what well, something like this? And they will turn to me invariably and go, nobody. <laughs> and I will go, that's not exactly true. Here's three that I know of. Now, 
if you'd like to work together or you want me to consider doing a deal with you at EMI, depending on where I was, I need you to go back and I just need you to put in two or three search terms that describe what you're doing and look at the list of what comes back of either what currently exists or what came before you and went away. And they, they, they'll invariably go, I had no idea. I thought we were the only people doing this. So it becomes everything old is new again. It depends in the case of mobile subscription, was the bandwidth there? Do we need to wait till 3G before you could stream to a cell phone? Now we've got 5G. With video, did you need to have broadband at home? Was there a better compression technology? Because it comes down to not the idea, but the mainstreaming of the idea and the and the elegant execution of delivering a consumer-friendly experience, not a proof of concept, not turning your audience into beta testers. <laughs> on their own time. On their own time. Right. And on their own time and on their own dime. So, on, you know. So, I, so let's take this with another twist with what you just said. With 5G, is there anything that 5G may bring that's a different loop? Or are we going to see the same usual suspects come through with whatever 5G brings to the table? Well, the two things I joke about probably a dozen times a week are blockchain and 5G. <laughs> And so somebody will say to me, do you know about blockchain? Yeah, I know about blockchain. I put some blockchain cream on my elbow last night. It feels so much better. Blockchain cures everything. I had a bad cold last week. I took some uh, blockchain pills and now I feel wonderful. Every time something new comes along, there is a certain belief that, okay, this was all we needed now to make it work. And I think 5G makes delivery of content more elegant. I think it makes delivery of content more immediate. I think we can do things where we're sharing screens across phones. And uh, I was playing the other day with, I've got a, I've got a Samsung 10. I'm about to get a Samsung 11, but I found that it had its own form of Chromecast in it. And so instead of hooking up an HDMI cable or figuring out if the fi- if the video file is Chromecast enabled, I just hit a button called quick view and it pops up. It happens that TCL TVs, the TCL Roku TVs speak to the Samsung phones. And so what used to be, I want to show you this to you on the screen. Give me five minutes to figure out how to do it is literally now less than 30 seconds from, wait, just sit there for a second and watch this. So the time to enjoyment gets shorter. The immersed in the experience, Arthur C. Clarke said, great technology seems like magic. And I've always argued that if you're amazed by the technology and you're not amazed by what you're watching, then the technology got in the way. Mm-hmm. That the technology should be invisible to the experience. So I look, I mean, when I'm working with companies looking for solutions, I'm trying to find them a streaming partner or a graphics partner that makes everything, you're not thinking about how they did it. You're just going, cool. And the parallel that I use is if I go with Maggie and we go to see a band and someone says to me the next day, what do you think of the band? And I go, the drummer's really good. And I think the lead singer has a lot of charisma. The lead guitar player at times was brilliant. I didn't like the band. Mm-hmm. If you said to me, what do you think of the band? And I go, they're effing amazing. Then we can get into why they're effing amazing. I mean, when I, when I, I, I managed Guns N' Roses for 30 days. And I went to see them at Gazari's, which is now the Key Club. And 
I literally walked out and just was, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And it was the totality of the, the visual and audio assault of the band. And it wasn't, I can't remember if, if Axel at the time was a good singer or a bad singer, but he, I had my head in the speaker cabinet on the stage. I worked my way all the way up to the front of the stage and I'm standing in front of one of those huge stacks on the stage going, this is unbelievable. I've gone to see other bands that are considered better bands. Then I went, yeah, that was nice. (laughs) So it's about that connection. It's using whatever the technology is to really make that connection. What now do you actually see is effing amazing? What have I seen that's amazing? I just got, and it, they're almost that you can amazing. talk about that you that you're talking about. I can talk about. Mm-hmm. So back in two thousand three, two thousand four, I met two amazing women, Susan Paley and Sharon Graves, and they were at a company called Fat Noise, P H A T N O I Z. No, I I'm sorry, N O I S E. And Fat Noise was an amazing uh, piece of hardware. You, if you happen to have a BMW or an Audi or an Acura you would pull that six disc changer out of the trunk of your car and plug in the fat noise unit, which now took you from a six disc changer to a 5,000 disc hard drive. And the, the beauty of it was they had figured out you don't have time in the car to learn something new. The, the beauty of their technology was your head unit, the, the radio and your dash still thought it was talking to a six disc changer, but now it was talking to 5,000 discs. And you could scroll through them and you could see visually on the screen what it was. And they added a voice synthesis to it. So if you were driving, you didn't have to look at the readout. You could hear Robbie Williams, Angel, whatever, and you could select it. They sold the company to Harmon Carden. Susan stayed at Harmon Carden. Sharon went to, Sharon Graves went to DTS to work on a competitive uh, interoper- interoperable speaker, speaker networking protocol, similar to what Sonos does with uh, a wireless mesh network called PlayFi. But I lost track of Susan. A few months ago, I said to Sharon, what's Susan up to? And she tells me, and I reach out to her. Susan Paley's just launched, was launching officially in two weeks. The company's called droplabs.com. It's called the EP01, EP01. It is a really comfortable sneaker that has transducers in the sole. And you're basically walking around. The other day, I was doing my version of John Travolta in Saturday Night Fever at the beginning, walking down the street. You literally are feeling the music up through your feet, up into your back. You've got your headphones on. There's a parallel company that that they know each other called Subback that made a, a body uh, transducer subwoofer device. So you'd put that vest on and a pair of headphones and you'd feel it in your chest and in your shoulders. We're playing around right now, how to get my sub back and how to get the shoes working together. Oh, that sounds great. But, but it's an immersive music experience and it turns out for six years and we fairly well. So you'll get the joke. She ended up leaving Harmon Carden and was employee number one at beats working for Dre and Jimmy. Mm-hmm. And she was president of Beats. And I, I said, how long are you there? And she said, six years. And I said, how many pair of headphones did I miss out on? <laughs> so you get it. 
I'm like, literally, I'm still in tears a week later when she told me, I'm like, you were there for six years and we lost track of each other. So she had a pair of shoes sent over two weeks before they're officially hitting the street. And I have been walking around the neighborhood with them and I love them. And again, it's an immersive experience. And then there's a collateral benefit, not collateral damage. They're giving, they're trying, working with organizations, providing the music experience to people who are deaf. Mm. So that you're feeling, and Subpack has been doing the same thing. And that's how they met. They're working similar organization uh, with the, some of the same organizations. And it's just a very cool product. Now, are people going to spend $375 for a pair of music sneakers? I don't know. I sent her a picture back. And you could look these up online. I'm giving these to her when I see her next week. They're called Code M. These were sneakers with speakers on the side. They were stereo speakers, uh, stereo sneaker speakers. And this was a woman over that lived around the corner from me over in uh, Hancock Park. She was a former Olympic runner. And she invented these shoes. But the shoes held 128 meg. They took like two hours to charge up. They were about 10 years before their time. Yeah. But these were MP3 shoes. You would hear the music and you would feel it a bit on the side of your feet. But it, again, when, when I showed them to Susan, she goes, I never knew these existed. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, it's not people copying people when everything old is new again. It's people didn't, don't realize sometimes that people thought of it. I will leave it at this. In the case of Apple... I always had this sort of uh, resentment that Apple would build on other people's ideas and present them as nobody's ever thought of this before, like the iPod. Mm. I think to the average person, oh, isn't this cool how novel we are? But I think that they didn't pretend that creative and other folks didn't exist before them and Rio and everybody else. But I think to the average person, it was flashbang, isn't this cool? And I think they, they, they still live that mm. dream at times. I'll tell you one of my last prejudices with Apple, and this was something I just had trouble getting over. There were companies out there that were doing great stuff. And one day I was showing a friend a an Apple video iPod. And I said, and this was before it came out. And I'm showing it to him. And I said, look at this. And I said, look how crisp the screen is. And look how whatever. And he's going, this is great. This is great. When is it coming out? I said, in a few weeks. But isn't it amazing? And then I moved my finger and it said Creative Labs. Yeah, It was something that was already out. And they went, oh, it's not an iPod. And yeah. I went, wait, I'll put my, I'll put my finger back <laughs> over the logo. Now it's an iPod again. You just got done telling me how amazing this is, but it's not an iPod. I know that and, you share a photo of, of all of the shelves of old tech that you have on your wall. And I, I don't have shelves. I have boxes. And with the, the current quarantine, I've actually been pulling things out and plugging them in and seeing if their software still works with the main system and all this stuff. But it, it, people forget all of the, the, the things on the road ahead. And the first one out is often not the ones we remember at all, that somebody else comes up and pretends or, or doesn't know, but usually pretends that it's a new thing. Like even now, I'm really quick. And this is, this is going to be an interesting case. I mean, if you remember... When, when uh, Google Glass came out, some of us who dared to wear it went from being the coolest kid on the block to being a glass hole. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden it was, take those off. Well, they're actually, they're fun. No, I don't want you wearing them while, while you're here. It was like first world problem. You weren't allowed to wear them in Soho House. Then 
you, the announcement about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that Apple's coming out with their version of Google Glass. A company called North had come out with their version. Mm-hmm. And at some point, people are going to go, well, this is obvious. I want this. On the other side, was announced literally a few hours ago, Bose pulled out of AR. Oh, really? Because they've had their, yeah. wow. Yeah. Bose pulled out of AR and Snapchat has announced a new version of their AR glasses. Mm-hmm. So we're in this thing of, I believe ultimately AR is going to be important. I believe that, that VR is important, but it's a much, much more insular experience. So I, I my first VR experience was in 1994 on the road with our friend Mark Cantor promoting his CD-ROM. And we end up in a VR pod at Cybersmith in Cambridge in Harbor Square. And it was back when Jaron Lanier was was building these things that look like Darth Vader helmets. Mm-hmm. So here we are 26 years later and people are going, have you seen VR? So again, everything old is new again, but in each iteration, it gets better and better. And the technology gets less and less intrusive and the experience gets better. And that's the outcome I think we all want. And, and sort of coming full circle on that a bit. So I, I've been in Zoom for, I don't know, I've been seven years something like that but go to meeting all that other so that's like suddenly zoom is new and everyone's getting used to these really boring flat shots it's like we we've taken what we were thinking that we would connect in vr and do second life and whatever and we've now turned into these little flat squares i was in a meeting before this and i've been using snap camera and so I suddenly turned myself into a cloud because with, with their AR and their computer vision, they can actually right. map where you are and all that stuff. People are going, right. what the hell are you doing? I said, you've been able to do this. I mean, so the whole thing of the, we've almost getting to our consumer comfort with things that there's so many ways that things can be taken, but people don't know what's already been out there. And, and suddenly you've got you know, the consumer audience suddenly coming into things now. I think that, you commented earlier that we suddenly have these sudden changes and and now people are looking at some things are broken. Maybe we can rebuild them. In addition- we, You and I had an experience a few weeks ago when, when we did that panel together mm-hmm. and the and the avatar environment was too clever for oh, its yeah. own good. Sorry, you want, you other, want to explain that a little bit more? <laughs> I was very excited that we were going to be in a virtual conference environment yeah. and we could walk around the virtual conference and we could meet people in the virtual conference. And I never found my way to the conference. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I, I I'm getting super, cups of coffee yeah. at the virtual coffee bar and <laughs> I'm walking up to virtual merch stands. But I, it turns out they're actually, they had no link in the virtual concert conference environment that took you to the panels that were taking place. Well, they did, but they were like looking at traditional flat or rectangular screens up on the right. wall. How much does the whiz bang not matter? And how much right. are we and just trying to find the whole thing? Yeah. It's back to I'm the earlier more organic the experience, but I mean, mm-hmm. again, everything old is new again. When we had a client years ago called stream jam and stream jam was a guy named Sibley verdict who had made millions building Second Life Worlds for IBM and American Express. And he, the funny thing is he took all that money and he bought 40 acres in Santa Cruz. He bought an old camp grounds and he's living off the grid with solar power and uh, well water. 
he basically it was an avatar environment with a flat screen with with an with the artist performing, but you could walk to the merch stand and buy a virtual T-shirt. Everything everyone's saying now about the monetization opportunities: you can buy virtual merch, you can buy whatever. This was around ten years ago, mm-hmm. and I'm going to give you my 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 secret thing that I'm trying to pull off, and we'll we'll see how many people are listening to what we're saying and made it to the end of it. <laughs> Out of everything that's happened in this crisis. I think the people who've done the best job of advertising during this are the progressive commercials with Flo and and Jamie and the other girl, where they're mm-hmm. sitting in yep. the in the Zoom environment. I'm try. I reached out and I got a hold of the guy who created Flo and Jamie. Cool. And I'm discussing getting Flo and Jamie to moderate a session on influencers and how to be an influencer. And I think Flo moderating a panel could be with Jamie going, but what about me? Could be a, a lot of fun. Oh my gosh. The, That's such a- the, I, so I wrote to the guy and the guy said, let's talk next week. And if anybody hears this before then and steals it, so what? They won't hear, but do then. it. <laughs> but it, I, I think it would be a lot of fun, but that's why what I love, and I'm going to leave it at this. Most of the time, because of the long view that, that I have and you have, and Jim Griffin has and whatever, we've been around this long time. There's a tendency when we go to, when I went to the physical version of music tectonics or going to digital Hollywood, you sit there a lot of the time going, yeah, we talked about this five years ago. Yeah, we talked about this 10 years. Yeah, they're not mentioning so-and-so who did this so long ago. The moments I love when I go, wait a minute, could you repeat that? You're doing what? And you're starting to lean forward and you're you're getting out of your leaning back going, okay, surprise me, into... That's cool. And there are people out there still, even though I think the biggest crisis we have in digital is we're running out of names for the companies. <laughs> I mean, that's Or the we take tragedy. out the vowels, right? So, yeah. so suddenly we have a name recording going, yeah. how do you spell that? What are you doing? You know, Cohenster. What is it? <laughs> Somebody, what, what Brian Zisku posted, is uh, Shoshana posted that they're having a birthday party for their hamster. And I posted, I thought hamster was where you got non-kosher food. We're running out of names, but I love those moments when somebody says something and I go, wait a second, say that again slowly. Oh my God, that's brilliant. And I think we haven't run out of those ideas. The ideas are still coming and the technology, the advances in the tech will power it, but it comes down to the difference between Mark Cuban who said, I want to hear Indiana base, Indiana university basketball games so I'm going to create a streaming network so people can hear sports and Blake Gregorian creating Slingbox yeah. so you could watch the San Francisco 49ers. While he was traveling. You end up, yeah. you end, while he was traveling, you end up with these universal themes. And then, but most of the time, someone has created a solution in search of a problem. Yep. And that's what you have to avoid. You have to think what really weighs heavily on you that would make life better, that you have the technological or the design or the UI UX experience to create an an amazing experience and run with that. But if you've come up with a solution for why you don't like to take the dog out for a walk, I'm not going to build a robot that's going to robotically walk your dog. I mean, the the number of idiotic things that I've heard pitches for sometimes can be numbing, but there I've met a lot of brilliant people and I love what I do. And I love what you do as well. And I'm appreciating your being on the show. 
we've talked about a lot of things. Is there any, we're, we're at the end of our time together, at least for this round. Anything that you'd like to mention we haven't talked about? I'm going to talk about something obscure. There is a company that, uh, that, that I work with sporadically that had an idea to provide what they do into a new vertical. And the people they need the rights from, the, 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 the rights holders, the, the music companies, are going, well, there's not enough money there right now. So why don't we wait until there's enough money there? And we're, we're trying to desperately explain there won't be a lot of money there in the beginning. But when it's adopted, there will be a lot of money there. And then the other pushback, and I'm trying to be very obscure here. Being very well, this big. is the story you're telling that you could have told 20 years ago too, but go ahead. Right. But the, the other thing was they were saying, we're saying they're willing to pay a million. This organization is willing to pay a million dollars to the rights holders to be allowed to do such and such. And they're going, well, we don't think anybody will use it. Well, then great. Take the million dollars anyway. I mean, if you re- if they do use it, it's the beginning of a new vertical. And if they don't use it, it's another million dollars to the bottom line. You know, it's almost like Pascal's wager or whatever. Not Pascal's wager, but it's basically if you know, it's, it's what's Pascal's wager about believing in God. If you don't believe in God, what's the harm in saying I do? Mm-hmm. And if it turns out that you were wrong, you were really good at hedging your bet. So, I mean, this is the argument that we were getting into with one of the rights holders was if you think it's good, then realize that you're starting a new vertical and a new revenue stream that is not cannibalistic. And if you don't believe it's going to work, then it was free income, but you help them at least test to see if it's going to work or not. And so that's the arguments that I have most of the time is what what's the resistance I'm at Phillips and they hired me to create karaoke CD-ROMs. I I, I had said, I know David Bowie's people. I know the Rolling Stones. I know the Who. I know Van Halen. And they said, okay, karaoke. And I went, that's not what I want to do. But I built a, uh, I built, the engineers built a karaoke platform utilizing CDI. And in the middle of it, the chairman of CDI, of, of Phillips retired and a new guy came in, called a meeting in London at the Excalibur Hotel at the airport at Heathrow in a huge meeting room with leather pads in front of every chair and note paper and whatever. And he goes, we're killing your project. And I go, why? He says, well, Pioneer is very successful in karaoke and we don't think we can compete. And I'm the only guy in the room as a consultant. Everybody else in the room works there. And I said to this guy, John, who was the new chairman, I said, John, you're absolutely right. I said, and since I have a couple more weeks that you're paying me for till my agreement is over, I'll give you some other advice. I think Phillips should get out of TVs because Sony's doing really good in that vertical. You should get out of clock radios because Panasonic's killing you. You should get out of coffee makers. And I went through the whole list of every vertical that Phillips was in. And he goes, so you think this will compete? I said, this is better than anything Pioneer's ever done. It won every award that year. It, it turned out really good, but I'm out in the hall with the people that I was working with who were all employees. And you know, I hadn't been, they actually hired me after that. I still understand it, but <laughs> I'm in the hall and they go, how could you talk to him like that? And I went, I was being fired. That was my exit interview. Unfortunately or unfortunately, my exit interview turned into me getting rehired. And my project was alive again, but I had to say what was on my mind. 
So I think the tombstone is he never had an unspoken thought. And I appreciate that. If people would like to get a hold of you, what is the best way way to reach out to you? The best way is at SpinalTap at Earthlink.net. Really? Yes. Okay. It'll always get there. I, I do want to say one other thing because I, I can't <laughs> believe I thing. left One other thing. I'll make out. that the time. And then you can figure out, where you figure out where you can put it. Uh-huh. If there's any advice I can give is find somebody uh, that you resonate with to be a mentor and an advisor and listen to them. Don't do everything they say. But if you if you find somebody that, that, that you click with, it can be a great relationship for both sides. And the example I always use is, is Daryl Ballantyne. I mm. met in 2003 in Toronto in the lobby of the Harbor Castle Hotel. He walked up to me. He says, can I come to LA and intern for you at EMI? Fast forward, he started Lyric Find when he finished interning with me. I joined the board a year later. I've been on the board for 16 years, and I'm on a retainer with my intern. I've helped him at various points in the growth of the company. He's helped me at times when I've needed moral and other support, and it's just been a great relationship. So out of my original experience with Billy Bass and Frank DeLeo and Steve Popovich back in Cleveland mentoring me, I've been in an eternal pay it forward for the rest of my life. And I will tell you on June 17th or 18th, what day is today? I believe, I hope it's the 17th. Okay. On June 17th, as of today, I have finally written back to all your students who wrote me about interning. Fabulous. And we'll leave it at that. I love you dearly. Talk to you soon. So that's the episode. Thanks for joining us at Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson. We welcome you to subscribe on all your favorite podcasting services and come nominate uh, people to be on the podcast. Come to your favorite social media where you can find us as well or come find us at creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and nominate people that you may not even know that you'd like to see on the show. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time with Creative Innovators with Gigi Johnson.
Thanks for listening to Creative Innovators. We are expanding our footprint. So we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools in the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024.